My name is Dean, and welcome to Theo Live, a live YouTube show airing every Monday where we talk about theology, church, and culture. Now let's get into it. Hey, welcome to Theo Live. We're doing a little bit different today because I really didn't want to go through like the whole like making an intro video. Let me know. Let me know in the chat, in the comments, if you're watching on the rewatch, whether you like those intros or not. People on YouTube tell me I need to do it, but it doesn't seem to be helping my analytics and it's a lot of work anyways. But let me know. Do you like those little intros? Here's an intro. This is the hammer, guys. Look at this thing. See this? This is the hammer, the Martin Luther. No, it wasn't. But Martin Luther used the hammer, maybe like this, maybe not so much like this, and nailed the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517. Here we are, 500 and 1517, 505 years. Yeah, 505 years later. We're talking about the Reformation today. It's October, y'all, which doesn't just mean Halloween. October 31st, everybody goes Halloween. You know, they don't, you aren't going to go into your local Walmart or wherever you buy stuff. You aren't going to go in there and find like little monk outfits. Like nobody celebrates the Reformation like we should. Like the Reformation is a big deal. And we got to ask the question, should we put these hammers away? Should we put them away? Is the Catholic Church any different than what Martin Luther was rebelling against in 1517? Has it changed? Have we changed? Has Have the truths of the Reformation changed? Maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I'm going to put my hammer away. I put it over. It's, it's over here now. But you guys know it's there just in case we need it later. Uh, I don't know. Maybe something could fall. We never know with the set. Um, but... A lot of us might not know that much about the Reformation. A lot of people in my audience, you guys are more in tune with what's going on right now. And that's part of Christianity. It seems like Christianity for the last, I don't know, a couple decades has kind of lost its roots, has lost touch with Christian history, at least in the broad spectrum of evangelicalism. It seems like we don't know our history very well. So today... We're going to change that, y'all. We're going to be doing some history. And that means that five of you are going to jump out. I know that. But that's okay because I think this is super important. And as we come closer and closer to Reformation Sunday, I think that we need to understand what was the Reformation even about? Why did it matter? What was going on at that time? What has been going on throughout Christian history? If you're here and you're interested in that kind of stuff, let me know by hitting that like button. I'd appreciate it. It means that, you know, YouTube's going to go tell somebody, hey, Dean's talking about the Reformation. Come over here. You might enjoy this. You know, like maybe they could join in. Maybe they could join the Reformation and get their hammers. I grabbed it again. I, this is why I don't do props, guys. If I did props all the time, it would just be here. Like, that's all I do is just mess around with props. That's why I don't do it when I'm preaching either. But today we are going to talk about the Reformation. So let's jump back a little bit. Maybe you're like, okay, I get that was 500 years ago. I know the names. I know Martin Luther. I know John Calvin. Maybe, maybe you've heard of my guy Ulrich Zwingli, which is a really fun name to say, by the way. Uh, but maybe you know about those guys, but you don't know what came before them. 
Because for some of us, like I said, we're out of touch with church history. We don't know what's going on. And so we we haven't really done that much study. In our, maybe your pastor hasn't really talked that much about church history. You know, coming from a fundamentalist background, church history started in 1950. Or, you know, a little bit earlier than that with R.A. Torrey and the fundamentals and all of that kind of stuff. But it didn't seem like we were ever really talking about church history. So it was something that I had to study for myself too. When going to seminary, that was like a, a big aspect of that learning about church history and figuring out what led to that reformation. So for me, where I want to start is really with the apostles. All right. We're going all the way back to the beginning. So we have the apostles in the book of Acts, right? They're doing their ministry and then they all die, right? Like John's the last holdout. And he's there on the island of Patmos, maybe burned alive with oil. We There's debate on that. But he's there on the Isle of Patmos, and he's the last survivor. And then we have like the second generation of Christians. We, we have guys like Onesimus, who's mentioned in Philemon. Apparently, he took over a church in Ephesus. We have some historical writings about that. Uh, we've got Polycarp. We've got a bunch of different guys, and they carry the gospel forward. And every generation did that until we came to this moment, really in the third century, where we had all kinds of teachings that were going around. Some of it that was started in the New Testament, talking about, you know, um, the Judaizers and their use of the law. And there were some issues with that. But then there came on the scene, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, this guy named Arius. Arius was a heretic. But the church didn't know. They didn't know. What, what does it even mean to be a heretic? We didn't know. So we had this group of people get together in Nicaea. And it was led uh, by Constantine, who was the emperor at that time. He's the one who said, all right, we need to figure out what our teaching is, the historical teaching of the church on the Trinity. Let's get together and make sure that we align with scripture and figure out exactly what the church is going to put forward to the rest of the world. And so when we did that, there was a step that was taken. And some, some guys disagree with me about this. All right. But when Constantine got involved, there was a problem, I think. All right. I think that, yes, a lot of good. Don't get me wrong. All right. The Nicene Creed, fantastic. You know, what happened there to, to confront that the heretical teaching of Arius, that Arius was teaching that Jesus wasn't fully God, that he was a created being, um, you know, like a lot, like Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. There's a lot of different people that believe that kind of stuff, but there was a, a false view of the Trinity. Uh, and so a lot of good came out of the Council of Nicaea, coming out with the Nicene Creed, affirming what Scripture clearly teaches about the inner workings of the Trinity and how they are co-equal, that they are uh, of the same essence, all of that great stuff. But what I think is a problem is when Constantine, who was the emperor, got involved and kind of put his stamp of approval on what it means uh, to really be a Christian. Um, that authoritative point right there, I think led to what is now known as the papacy. Some people obviously will disagree with me. Catholics, of course, if you're here, Catholics, you're going to disagree with a lot of what I have to say. Um, now I want you to listen because maybe you'll, you'll see what I'm saying and what scripture is saying is a little bit different than what you've been taught. But 
historically speaking, you can go back. We're not going to find that much about some kind of leader of the church, uh, like the Pope. Today we see the Pope. He, he just came to Canada a couple of weeks ago uh, to talk about First Nations stuff and uh, all the, the bodies that were found in these residential schools. It's a terrible terrible thing you can look up i have videos about that um but we know who the pope is and he kind of stands for the roman catholic church and he says that he is the leader that he is the visible head of the church here on this planet while christ is the overall head of the church and that's the way it's been for hundreds of years but when you look back at those first couple generations of christians you just don't see that but i think when Constantine got involved and put his, you know, kind of stamp of approval, that authoritative point on the, the Nicene Council, uh, then I think that's where we kind of kind of fell into a trap a little bit that we fell into this. Oh, well, we can have an authoritative figure say this is what Christianity is. Now, I think that overall it was good, but I think it set a bad uh, trajectory for where the papacy, which is the pope and the office of the pope, the teachings surrounding what the pope is, that's where I believe that it comes from. And we don't have a lot of historical. So like some of you, some of you Catholics who are like, oh, well, you know, we have Peter and then it came to this guy and this guy and this guy. You don't have historical proof to say that. All right. You have things written much later that talk about it. But you don't have anything from that generation. That's a big point. Okay. Uh, so for me, I look at that and say, okay, that's where we kind of get this idea of the papacy. And so the Pope is there uh, a couple hundred years later. It would be the pastor, the bishop who was in Rome. And he basically became the person who was in charge for the Roman Catholic Church. And they tried to really get everyone to follow this one leader. Now, as you could imagine, that's a lot of power. And what do we know about power? It corrupts. We can see that pretty clearly. So what happened was you had a bunch of different leaders who were saying, all right, well, you know, this is what stands for the church. I am the person who's standing up. And then you had a couple of people who kind of stood against the tide and was like, all right, this is what it means to really be someone who is a leader. I need to limit my authority. You had people like uh, Pope Bonyface, which is a fun way to say it. It's Boniface, okay? I know it's Boniface, but Bonyface. Um, so I think he was like around like 400. I had no, Ed is in the chat, which means he's going to have some, he's going to have some uh, historical data to, to give us the guy. The guy has a doctorate, so he knows what he's talking about. Um, but around 418, according to my notes that I now have open, uh, he tried to limit the powers of the papacy. Because the, the Pope would say, I'm speaking ex cathedra, which means I'm speaking for God. And everyone was supposed to just obey that. And they basically take that from uh, Jesus talking about Peter. I believe it's Peter. Some people say it's uh, his confession of Christ. Some people say it's just the church in general. Uh, but he says uh, that you are a rock and on this rock I will build my church. Well, they took that as Peter and then they ran with it in a way that I don't think Jesus ever was intending uh, but then you know he just gets to say what goes for the church that he's the leader 
of the church. So the Pope would be the descendant, the, the spiritual ancestor, if you will, or a descendant of uh, Peter. So he gets the keys. He gets to hold on to say what is truth. How do we interpret scripture? And there were some people like Boniface who stood up and said, no, I think that we should do it a little bit differently. But overall, over the years, it became this thing where you had just this one leader who was so powerful and saying, this is what the church is supposed to be. And we really have that from basically like 500 AD on. So like, uh, and it wasn't as supreme. Like, like I said, there were other leaders. It wasn't just Boniface, but there were others who were saying like, hey, you know, let's slow our roll a little bit. You know, we, we want to be humble about this. Uh, even if I am a leader of the church, I'd, I'm not going to, you know, abuse my authority. There were decent popes. Okay, not everyone was like Leo. All right, Leo the tenth. Um, but there were tons of like good ones, uh, not tons, but there were several. Ton, uh, there were several decent ones. Uh, but they they stood up and said, "Let's let's roll this back a little bit." But it progressively got worse until you have this moment, really, in 1517, where you got Martin Luther and he grabs his hammer and he has some issues with the Roman Catholic Church and specifically the papacy. Uh, actually, if you read his 95 theses, which if you are a Christian, you should have this, you know, these, these are a little like, it's not that big. All right. It was written on a scroll, so it can't, it couldn't have been that big. Um, but you could, you could find this for a couple bucks on Amazon. Uh, this one is edited by Stephen Nichols. So that's over, uh, he's over at Ligonier and all of that. Um, this is great. This is great. This is PNR publishing. Um, but you should have a copy because when you look through that, like, yes, you're going to find justification by faith alone, which we'll get to. But mostly you have Martin Luther confronting the Roman Catholic Church about the abuse of power, abuse of power by the Pope and by other priests and saying this is what, you know, is supposed to go for the rest of the church. And the reason why they were able to do that is because nobody had the Bible, y'all. Nobody had the Bible. They didn't know Latin. The word of God was held captive by a select few. The priests were the ones who had the knowledge to understand how to read Latin. And instead of taking that Latin and translating it into the common tongue of the people so that everyone could have the word of God, they hoarded it. They hoarded it for themselves and they weren't willing to do that work. And they really weren't willing because they knew it had power that they were the ones who could read scripture and the common man, they would even say wasn't intelligent enough. And God forbid if women could read that's that's uh, council of Trent goes into that quite a bit of how God forbid that women would be able to read the word of God. You want to talk about sexism. You could talk about the Catholic church, <laughs> um, but they didn't want you and me, the common man to be able to read the word of God, because we were not capable of interpreting it properly. And so they kept it to themselves. And when they did that, they had that power to say, this is how Christians are to read the word of God. And this is the teachings and people had to trust them. They had to trust them in order to hear that, that word of God, or even be allowed into the church to hear more about the word of God. They had to trust their priests. They had to trust uh, what the papacy had set up. And so you had a lot of teachings 
that we're coming against uh, what historical Christianity has always taught. Things like purgatory. You're not going to find purgatory in the Bible, y'all. It's not there. Where'd it come from? Well, it came from priests who had the word of God and started talking amongst themselves. And you had popes that were putting out edicts and bulls and, and speaking ex cathedra in the place of God, saying that this is directly from God. And all of a sudden, purgatory is orthodox to Christianity. Purgatory meaning that you have a secondary location after earth on your way to heaven or hell, uh, and you have to work off uh, your sins in order for you to obtain that eternal life. Well, that's not what Jesus says to the thief on the cross, who if anyone had stuff to work off, he definitely didn't have time to do it. Uh, but today you will be with me in paradise is what Jesus says to him. But we have purgatory in the Catholic Church. You have the papacy. You have tons of different other teachings, the acceptance of the Apocrypha, different scriptural writings, because people weren't able to read the Word of God for themselves. They had to trust the, uh, the good priest, right, who was, who was looking out for them, who was, who was shepherding their souls. They had to trust him. And so when they said, oh, this is also the Word of God, they had to trust in that. And there's a lot of teachings in the Apocrypha that are not orthodox in any way. There is a reason why they weren't part of the canon in the first place. In other words, uh, what Scripture really is, the canon of Scripture, uh, those 66 books, that's, that's what Scripture is. And this uh, apocryphal teaching, that was extra. And so a lot of priests accepted those teachings and started teaching those things, which has different ideas about uh, your eternal destination and uh, things like purgatory uh, and a bunch of different things. And most importantly, indulgences. Now, if you know what an indulgence is, you know that that was like the tipping point for Martin Luther. Uh, there's a great, it's not, it's not historically accurate, okay? But there is a great movie uh, of Martin Luther uh, Joseph Fiennes plays Martin Luther and it shows his heart. And I think you could see it in his writings as well, that Martin Luther was a pastoral guy. He loved his people. And there was teachings that were coming around him about this idea of indulgences, which basically was you pay the priests, the Catholic church in order for you to be saved. You pay more and you might be able to get out of purgatory or get someone you love out of purgatory. Now, what loving father or what loving mother wouldn't try to do that for their children, right? Well, this is scandalous. This is, this is the Catholic Church, you know, just abusing their congregants. And this was all over the place. It, it was prevalent throughout all of Roman Catholicism to the point where all a lot of those buildings, you know, I had a friend who was traveling over in Europe and he was sending me all these pictures of these beautiful cathedrals. And I just couldn't help thinking, I wonder how many peasants had to die in order for that to be erected. It's serious stuff. We're talking about widespread abuse of uh, the most just poorest of the poorest 
and giving anything that they had in, tr in hopes of gaining salvation. And Martin Luther saw that and said, no, I'm not going to do that. Took his hammer, which didn't look anything like this, okay? Uh, but he nailed those 95 theses and the Reformation was started. And so what did those guys teach? All right, a lot of us know like that, that story. A lot of us know a little bit of the history, especially when it comes to indulgences and when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. We know all that kind of stuff surrounding it. But what were the reformers actually about? We'll get into it in just a minute. I want to hop into the chat. I definitely love interacting with you guys. If you are watching this live, uh, definitely hit the like button, but also hop into the chat and let me know uh, what you think about Roman Catholicism, uh, maybe some of your thoughts on indulgences, things like that. Uh, Alex is here. It says, doing great. Got to celebrate my wife's birthday over the weekend. That's awesome, man. Uh, Winsome Pickett, uh, reasonably, uh, reasonably well, thanks. However, I'm coming out of Joel Webbin's podcast, so bear that in mind. Okay, some shade thrown. Uh, John Adams, uh, because I like you, I don't really care for the intros. I think you have been killing it with just live streaming. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> like, I know uh, that's supposed to be the way that you do it, uh, but I haven't seen like any uptick in retention or anything, and I'm just wondering whether it's worth it. So, thought I would get rid of it for today and just talk. Um, uh, Anna Marie, hi Dean. I agree with you. The Reformation is a big deal, and it should be acknowledged more than it is. I I would say it's a holiday. I think we should get a day off from work. I think we should get like a big celebration of our churches. Like we should, we should be getting the bouncy house. It's not, you know, like obviously Easter is a bigger deal. Uh, Christmas, big deal too. But after that, for me, I'm saying reformation y'all. Uh, Ed is here and says, hello. Uh, appreciate you being here, man. Uh, Proverbs 17, 11 says, Hey Dean, God bless you. I appreciate that. Uh, Alex, this happened my sophomore year at a Bible college, October 31st. My, uh, friend said happy reformation day to one of the staff. And they said, we don't do that here. And he replied, what are you Catholic? Yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> like that seems like, uh, kind of the attitude that's going around a lot of places is just like, it doesn't matter. And it's a shame. You don't have to be, you know, super reformed in your soteriology to celebrate Reformation Day. Uh, you don't have to be a huge fan of Martin Luther or a Calvinist or anything like that. When we're talking about the Reformation, we're talking about Christianity. We're talking about orthodoxy. We're talking about the church getting back to what the church was supposed to be teaching the entire time. Uh, so it's, it's really a reclamation uh, of the gospel, getting it back and saying we're going to be... Uh, preaching this faithfully. Um, and Ed says, I think you're right, which is like a huge relief whenever Ed says you're right. Man, it means a lot. Uh, Jeremy, I think purgatory, uh, purgatory is just being stuck in traffic. Fairly certain that's in the Bible too. Um, <laughs> he's joking, guys. All right, Chris, would you say uh, Protestants today are protesting against Ethan or eastern orthodoxy as much as they are against uh catholicism or in the same vein would luther have nailed these against the eastern orthodoxy um yeah i would say yes uh i mean like you'd have to do a lot of like hypotheticals in that um but the teachings like martin luther was fighting for justification by faith alone which the eastern orthodox church doesn't get 
So yes, I would say yes to that. Uh, and then Tim is here and says, imagine scoring that hammer on eBay, LOL. <laughs> uh, probably, you know, like they would have burnt it. Like the Catholics would have found it. They would have burnt it. It's gone now. <laughs> but uh, Michael's here and says, hello, all. Uh, Psalm 139, my favorite time of the year is Reformation Day. Mine too. So let's get into it. Let's get into what are some of those teachings that the reformers were about? What really happened? Well, you know, you got Martin Luther and he nails those 95 theses, mostly about the papacy, mostly about uh, hypocrisy, which I mean, it's still a problem today. I, I did a short a little bit ago talking about how it's the greatest threat to evangelicalism. It was the greatest threat to, uh, threat to uh, Christianity back then. It still is today. Martin Luther thought so. Uh, but he nails those 95 theses there in 1517. He starts preaching. And he starts preaching the gospel. And specifically, when he starts getting into Galatians, y'all, he's preaching fire brimstone all right he's he is giving the gospel talking about um you know all of the solas and that is really the key to the reformation and understanding what these reformers taught uh it doesn't encapsulate everything that the reformers taught but for our study today i think we'll just really focus on those solas um, but really what we got to start with, with those solas, which Luther taught, which Calvin taught, which Zwingli taught, uh, which all those guys taught and they wouldn't, they didn't have it clearly marked out. They didn't have the t-shirts. They didn't have, you know, the bumper stickers that gave the solas in a very clearly defined way, but they did teach it. They taught it through their preaching. They taught it through their writings. And we'll look at some of that today, but where do they start for me? I start with sola scriptura. Now, what that means is by scripture alone. Because again, we're talking about in their historical context that people didn't have access to the word of God. And uh, there was all kinds of teachings that were being added to the word of God because people didn't know. And Luther was one of the few people that understood how to read the scriptures and was thinking about it critically to say, hey, there's something, there's something off about all of this, this purgatory and uh, indulgences and the papacy and all of these things. I don't see them in scripture. And what they would combat him with is that, yes, you might not see it in scripture, but that's sacred tradition. And that's a phrase that you'll find constantly throughout Catholic teachings is this idea of sacred tradition. In other words, that the church is the one who says how to interpret scripture. And that's why they held it, uh, the word of God captive for so long. Uh, so only the church has the authority to interpret scripture. You might be like, well, Dean, what are you talking about? Well, let's look over here. This is second Vatican. This wasn't long ago. Okay. Keep that in mind for when we come back to this later. All right. This is the second Vatican. Hence, there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture for both of them flowing from the same divine wellspring in a certain way merge into a unity and tend toward the same end for sacred scripture is the word of God inasmuch as it is consigned to writing under the inspiration of the divine spirit to the successors of the apostles sacred tradition hands on in its full 
uh, purity, God's word, which was entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. So this is what the Catholic Church teaches. Uh, it, te it taught it back then, all the way back in 1517. We'll look at some more statements. But it also taught it today. This is still what they teach. They teach this idea of sacred tradition, that the apostles handed off, you know, this idea of the papacy, this, this leadership, if you want to put it that way, leadership of the church, that these people stood in the place for God, and they said, this is what it means to interpret Scripture. And then the next guy would do that, and the next guy would do that. The problem with that is we don't see it in Scripture, so we don't see like the Holy Spirit saying like, hey, I'm going to grab hold of this guy. And this is what, you know, anything he says when he's speaking ex cathedra, that is going to be perfect. Men are not perfect. And so when we see things like this, we have to understand that we're playing like a telephone game. Really, we're talking about people who, I mean, if you look at some of the things that some of these popes did, okay, we're not all talking about, you know, saved folk. All right. Some of these popes were good. Uh, Boniface seemed to have, you know, a head on his shoulders uh, theologically. Um, but you have others who were definitely not. And so you have these guys who are basically playing telephone and the, the message of the word of God is getting distorted. And when there's distortions, there's new additions that are added in. And that's where all of those teachings that we see that are not in Scripture, but clearly taught in the Catholic Church, are there. And Martin Luther and John Calvin and men like that saw that and said, no, we have to get away from this. We have to get away from this idea of this, this flowing of the same divine wellspring, uh, this idea of sacred tradition. There is no sacred tradition. All right. It doesn't mean that church history isn't important. There is a reason why I'm talking about it right now, guys. It is important. But this is not how you interpret Scripture alone. You go to Scripture. Scripture is what is authoritative. It is the final authority for all faith and practice, not just an authority, like here, between sacred tradition and sacred Scripture for both of them flowing from the same divine wellspring in a certain way merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. In other words... They're equally authoritative because they're coming from the same place. They're both coming from God. And if they're coming from God, then they're both authoritative. Well, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that it alone is that final authority for all faith and practice. And there's tons of different Scripture verses that we can go to, uh, but for the sake of time, we're not going to. A lot of you guys, some of, some of y'all don't like it when I say stuff like that. You're like, give me the Scriptures. Uh, there are comments that are in the chat with scripture. You can go to those scriptures. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I only have so much time to do some of this teaching. All right. So, uh, so there's that. The reformers then went, went, went against that, that Catholic teaching of adding to scripture the sacred tradition. And they said, no, the scriptures are the final authority. Uh, and again, that's... It's not anything new. That's the thing with a lot of these things. A lot of people look at the reformers and say they, they like for the Catholic Church, they say that they constituted a new religion called Protestantism. Um, that is not accurate because we have stuff like this. 
Gregory of Nyssa, uh, 325 AD. What then is our reply? We do not think that it is right to make their uh, prevailing custom the law and rule of sound doctrine, for if custom is to avail for proof of soundness, we too surely may advance our prevailing custom. And if they reject this, we are surely not bound to follow theirs. Let the inspired scripture then be our umpire. And the vote of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine words. In other words, you know, people can have their traditions, their, their sacred traditions, but what is actually authoritative is the word of God. So if those sacred traditions or dogmas is how Gregory puts it, if those dogmas are in line with scripture, then cool. But if not, they're out, y'all. And this is not something that Martin Luther came up with. This was in 325 AD. There's tons of different writings. Look at Athanasius and how he views scripture. And ask yourself if that lines up with the Catholic idea uh, of sacred tradition. You're going to look at a lot of these guys in the, in the early church and say, no, they don't, they don't go together at all. So what the reformers were doing was getting back to the sources, ad fontes. Uh, that they were going back to the sources and looking at scripture and they're aligning with the early church and contrasting their teaching with the Roman Catholic church. So I would say that sola scriptura is the foundation. There are other people who would say it differently. Everyone looks at the solas a little bit differently. For me, when I look at uh, Martin Luther's writings, when I look at uh, John Calvin's writings, uh, I look at them and say they're going back to Scripture and they're laying that as the foundation. And then they're getting all their theology from the Scriptures, um, which you don't have to agree with everything they say, but I'm, I'm talking specifically about their views on justification by faith alone. Um, so that's what they're, go they're going with. So I would say that Sola Scriptura is like that foundation of the Reformers' teaching. Uh, but... From that, from this idea of viewing everything through the lens of Scripture and letting that be the final authority and not allowing what the Pope has said, not allowing what other priests have said, what the Apocrypha says, and having that all kind of infiltrate your interpretation of Scripture and then change it, rather than doing that, getting everything from the Word of God. And when you do that, you're going to come up with some uh, very basic teachings that you probably agree with. Uh, but the Catholic Church cannot. And one of those would be Solus Christus. So uh, if you're looking at the solas, there's five of them. So this would be number two, Solus Christus. What that means is Christ alone. So like you don't need to know Latin. A lot of it sounds like the exact thing that it's going to be in English. All right, so Solus Christus, Christ alone. And what that means is that Christ's sacrifice, that his righteous sacrifice was sufficient for the justification of sinners, fully sufficient. And you might be like, well, who would disagree with that? Well, the Catholic Church. <laughs> they disagree with that because they base salvation not just off of Jesus's atoning work on the cross, but also what you do with it, what you do with it not just Christ. And then they also have different things like prayers to the saints, which is again, this infiltration uh, of outside sources of different men's perspectives coming in uh, into line with their scriptural views. And all of a sudden they're praying to saints and they're asking saints for help in their salvation. They're asking Mary for help 
some merits, some, some good works, some of that good stuff. They want it to flow into their account. And when you're doing that, you're negating what Scripture teaches about how Christ's righteousness is sufficient for our salvation. Uh, so that's what Solus Christus is really all about. And that's really what comes into line uh, with this idea of indulgences. So this is from the Council of Trent, 1563. If anyone saith that by faith alone the, the impious is justified, in other words, a sinner, uh, is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Whoa! All right, and this, this was right around the time of Luther. Like, people look at the Council of Trent, and there's even podcasts about it. There are Christians who are being swayed by some of these podcasts that are out there, these, these Catholic ones that they got great production quality, okay? They beat my production quality, like, by a ton. And they're great at speaking, and they're charismatic people. But then they teach things like this, and they have to. And we'll get into why they have to in a little bit. But the Council of Trent is awful. And it was basically the Catholic Church fighting against the reformers, fighting against all the solas and combating that with their own teachings. So when you look at this, understand that they are trying to go against what Martin Luther taught about justification by faith alone and through the merits of Christ alone. And they're adding all these different things and saying that if you believe that it's only by the work of Christ and not by your works also, then you are cursed, anathema. In other words, go to hell. All right, let me, let me say it as clear as, that's what that word means, anathema. When Paul says it uh, to the Galatians that they, they had been swayed, uh, or uh, if anyone were to come and teach a different doctrine, that's what he means, go to hell. And that's what the Catholic Church is saying to anyone who, who would say, it is not by my works that I am saved. And contrasting to the reformers, they're saying, go to hell anathema let them be accursed so the catholic church would hold to that you need to do works and when you have to do works that takes away from christ's sacrifice and says that it is not enough if you look at the um uh the book of hebrews it's a very clear theme throughout it that christ is better that his sacrifice is better and that it is one time uh one time sacrifice that's enough for everyone uh, we don't need the blood of goats and all these different things. We don't need the blood of animals to cover our sins anymore. Christ paid the price for us. That's what the reformers taught. The Catholic Church, not so much. Uh, let's let's hop into the chat a little bit, and then we'll get into some of these other solas. Uh, if again, if you're here and you like this kind of content, hit the like button. If you are new to the channel think about subscribing. You know, you don't have to, but you know, just, just think about it a little bit. Um, no, but seriously, interesting fact about people constructing cathedrals. It was a community task and was welcomed because the priests would say they would forgive the sins of those who participated in building them. Yes. Over and over again, you could look at different writings around that time. You could look at not just Christian writings or evangelical writings. You can look at, uh, history books and know, that those beautiful cathedrals were built on the backs of the poor. 
it was their money. It was their hands. And they were abused spiritually by the Catholic Church. And I would even say physically. <sighs> no one's going to be mad about that. Um, Mr. Farm Boy. Yeah, us Anabaptists also see the problems with Constantine and things that happened not long thereafter, like the development of the just war theory a generation after Nicaea. Uh, yeah, there's there a lot of different implications. Like Council of Nicaea, good document, a lot of good things done, but some different precedents that were set that would lead to some some things that are at least questionable. Um, and no, but seriously, Mark 7, 8 through 13 is a great text to read where Jesus shoots down the idea of upholding tradition over God's commands. Yeah, definitely. There's tons of scriptures about it, but that's the problem with this idea of sacred tradition because you're saying, well, it's equally important. And then you're trying, you're basically doing, you know, what we do with hard texts, right? We interpret scripture by scripture but they view sacred tradition as equally as authoritative as scripture. They might not say it in that way, but that's what their documents say. And so that's how they treat it. And so they're interpreting some of those difficult passages in light of the sacred tradition, when really that sacred tradition is the only thing that makes that passage a difficult passage. So that that's why you have a lot of this. Um, but Armac is here and says scripture is so vital for our walk. The better we know it for ourselves, the better prepared we are to, uh, sift out the error from the truth. I completely agree. Uh, Anna, what about the other denominations that would confess to a Protestant reform doctrine, but in practice add works into justification and faith like Piper, MacArthur, Lawson, etc. Uh, um, I want to take Lawson out of that, uh, just cause I've heard him talk about it. And I don't think that you can put him into that. Um, but I know he runs in those camps. Uh, I will get into that. That's a good question. Uh, and, and some of you guys might be like, I don't agree with that question at all. It shouldn't be asked. It is a fair question. And, uh, we will talk about it at the end because when we get into some implications, um, let's see, Alex, I haven't competed, uh, completed it yet. Uh, but I have profited greatly from the five volume, five solo series with Matthew Barnett or Barrett. Matthew Barrett's great. He's fantastic. Um, let's go. Samantha in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my life, my strength. Uh, nice shirt, Dean. It's plaid weather, man. Uh, you guys like plaid flannel. It's a, you guys are going to be seeing this shirt shirts like it a lot. It's winter time, man. We're gearing up for it. Uh, flannel flannel season uh samantha my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm right a lot of those scriptural truths that that we hear in these beautiful songs that we sing about now well they weren't being taught at that time all right uh <laughs> i think ed is uh going full john wick i'm thinking i'm back all right uh let's let's keep on going here so uh let's talk about sola gratia so sola gratia is grace alone, grace alone, uh, meaning that justification is the work of God based on his grace alone. Uh, I'm not going to go there because I'm already feeling like we're going to go really long, but Ephesians 2 shows this so clearly, right? That, that salvation is by grace through faith, and it is not uh, a work that we do, because if it was, then we'd be able to boast, but it's not, so we can't. So the boasting belongs to who? It belongs to God. That is 
so clear. And yet, the Catholic Church was going against that. Uh, let's let's look at what the Council of Trent also says. Uh, so that was a little bit different. It's a similar idea, but look at this. If anyone says that the good works of the justified man are gifts of God, all right, that's what Scripture teaches. That's Ephesians 2. Gifts of God in such a way that they are not also the good merits of the justified himself or that the justified person by the good works he performs through the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit an increase in grace, eternal life, the attainment of eternal life itself, if he dies in grace. That, that goes like with the, the idea of suicide. Uh, and even an increase in glory, let him be anathema. All right. <laughs> Uh, oh man, these Latin word pronunciations need work. You know, hey, you know, we, we, we could argue about pronunciation. D, I'll, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. I'm going to ease back a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I know <laughs> it's, it's not the best. Mine aren't the best. All right. But let's look at this thing because this statement here has a lot, it has a lot in here because right at the beginning, uh, the, the works, the good works of the justified man are gifts of God in such a way that they are not also the good merits of the justified himself. That sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? You know, Anna Marie was asking a pretty fair question. This is a teaching that is alive and well amongst people who claim to be evangelicals. All right, this, this idea of, oh, your works are a part of your faith. Well, that's what the Catholics were arguing back here in 1563. Um this this idea of grace that um, that meaning that it is not also your works that's what they were teaching or that the justified person by the good works he performs gets some stuff that's what they taught uh, and the, he could get an increase in grace meaning that he doesn't have to spend as much time in purgatory or even eternal life the attainment of eternal life itself and if you don't believe that um that you could be saved through your works go to hell that's what the catholics said all right that's what it means okay don't get on my case about like dean's dean's using foul language or something like that i don't say that about anything because it's serious and the catholics are saying it about anyone who believes that you can be saved by grace alone like scripture says like ephesians 2 clearly teaches but if you don't believe in works adding to that then you are on your way to hell according to them so uh let's let's talk about sola fide as well these two kind of go hand in hand so you probably have caught on by now sola fide faith alone uh, that you are justified by faith alone justification is the work of god based on his grace alone and is received by faith alone so it's by grace but how do you get it how do you get that that righteousness that solus christus that that righteousness of christ that is fully sufficient for uh your the atoning work needed uh to redeem you from your sins to justify you how do you get that well it's by grace and how do you get that grace it's by faith all right by faith uh, so this is, this is known as like the great exchange. This gets into Martin Luther's core teaching. I would say that, you know, like there's a lot, 
like again, uh, if you're going to look at the 95 theses, uh, which you should, again, like this, you can find this for like four bucks on Amazon. Okay, guys. And it's a good reference point to have, but, um, you can, you can look at that and you can see a lot of, uh, Luther's teachings. I have a big fat book down there. I'm not going to get it. Um, but it's just what Luther said. And it's like 1600 pages. And it's probably one of my favorite books that I have, uh, because like, it's very rare. You're not going to find it a whole lot. Um, but it's basically just an encyclopedia of what Martin Luther taught about things. He had a lot to teach, uh, and a lot of good, good teaching that still is effective today, that that good teaching is still being taught by people, uh, that he is still having an effect theologically on people today by pastors, theologians today, it's still going, but I would say this is probably his, his, his crown jewel of his theological work is this idea of what I, I would say, sola fide, uh, by faith alone, how you get the foreign righteousness of Christ. In other words, a righteousness that is not your own because we are unrighteous. Ephesians 2, dead in our sins. All right. But we need Christ's righteousness. So how do we get that? How can we have that exchange? Because what the Catholics taught was that there was like this treasury of merits is what they called it. And that, uh, the more good works you do, the more of those merits you get, the less time you spend in purgatory, uh, the more righteous you become, the more justified you become through this treasury of merits. And, and so you can access that because Jesus and Mary and uh, some, of these, some of these other saints, they, they worked so hard and did so many good works that they had extra. As if, you know, Jesus wasn't enough, I guess. Um, but, you know, like they had extra and it all goes into this like piggy bank in heaven and that you get access to the piggy bank through your good works. But what Martin Luther was saying is that, no, there is no treasury of merits. Jesus is enough. But how do you get that? You get that through this great exchange by faith, believing in Jesus, putting your trust in Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. That is how you get access to this foreign righteousness of Jesus Christ, that it is imputed to your account. In other words, it's transferred into your account. You don't need to go, you know, get the hammer, bust open that piggy bank in heaven and get the treasury of merits. You don't need it because you get all the wealth that you could ever need that through the, the righteousness of Christ, that, that wealth is now in your account through faith, by faith alone, simple belief, not by works that are attached, but just through belief. Um, and this was widely taught. Uh, we can look over here at what, uh, Calvin says, we dream not of a faith, which is devoid of good works. So some people, some people would look at that and, you know, some people over the last couple of weeks have seemed like they've been uh, talking about that, but, um, they would say like, where are the works then? You know, you, you must have works attached to your faith. Well, this is what Calvin teaches. We dream not of a faith which is devoid of good works, nor of a justification which can exist without them. While we acknowledge that faith and works are necessarily connected, we, however, place justification in faith, not in works. There's no and there. <laughs> it's not in works. Uh, and that's what the reformers taught. Uh, so if you think about all that, then what 
what should be our reaction to that? You know, if you look at this and you, you could clearly see that the reformers taught that salvation belongs to the Lord and the Catholics just didn't, that salvation belongs to you, according to them, that you need to do these works. Well, if you were to do that, the Bible says that you're condemned because only Christ's sacrifice is enough. But if you believe in what the reformers taught, that you're like, all right, well, Jesus did the work. That salvation, that justification of the, the sinner is an act that is done by God, that it's by grace, that it's not according to anything that I've done, and that the only thing that is relying on me is having faith. But that is actually a gift that I'm given is that faith. So salvation belongs to the Lord. Okay, well, what is the reaction in my soul? Well, that's where Solus Christus comes in, this last sola, uh, or not Solus Christus, sorry, <laughs> Sola Deo Gloria, uh, to, uh, glory to God alone, that he gets the credit for your salvation. He gets all the glory, and you get none of it. None of it. We're going full Canadian. You get none of it. <laughs> you, you don't uh, attribute anything when it comes to your salvation that the only thing that you attribute is the sin. And Jesus is the one who gives everything in order to save you. So who gets the credit for that salvation? Well, he gets the credit. God alone gets the glory for the justification of sinners. And we can see that clearly in some things that uh, the reformers taught. Let's go back over here. Um, so this is a sermon on John 6. This is Martin Luther. Uh, sola Christa Gloria. This is the reason why we so greatly extol faith. It brings me, so talking about that great exchange again, the, the crown jewel of Luther's theology, it brings me divine works, yea, the works of the Lord Christ, so that, that imputation of his righteousness into our account, uh, namely his suffering and dying, his atoning work on the cross, and makes them my own. Our works are nothing in comparison. We owe him the honor that he is everything, and we are nothing. All right, uh, let's look over what Calvin teaches. For as long as a man has anything, however small to say, in his own defense, so long he deducts somewhat from the glory of God. For Paul intimates that who, whosoever imagines he has anything of his own rebels against God and obscures his glory. So if you are to go around and saying, well, I attribute through my works some part of, of justification that me adding to the works of christ gives like anything calvin says you're stealing god's glory that's blasphemy you cannot do that you are to give god all the glory because he alone gets the credit because he did all the work you taking a test and you know getting a 95 is great you get the credit for that jesus is the one who took the test for us He's the one who did the work. He gets all the credit and none of it for us. So that all being said, what about today? All right, that's, that's 1517. What about today? Are Catholics saved? That's, that's a hard question, right? You, you want to say yes. But if you look at the teachings of the Catholic Church, when they say things like they're speaking ex cathedra, they're saying that they're, uh, they're speaking for God. And God doesn't change. 
So the Catholic Church can't change. Their teachings can't change. They can, they can twist some words here and there. But the Council of Trent, they have to stand by that. That's why they're putting it out on podcasts. Because they know it. They're trying to get in front of it. <laughs> and saying, saying that, oh, this is good. The Council of Trent is good. Council of Trent is heretical. All right, you, you look at these different teachings, the Vatican, Second Vatican. You look at these teachings, they're devoid of any idea of justification by faith alone. They add works, and Catholics have to believe those things. Now, can someone in the Catholic Church be saved? Yes, they can by accident. Because maybe they're hearing things and they don't know the implications of those terms. And so they're looking at Scripture and they're hearing what Scripture actually teaches, but the priest is saying and meaning something else. They can be saved by accident by reading Scripture because they have access to the Word of God now. Not back then, but now they do. So they can be saved. But if you're going to hold to the teachings of the Catholic Church, then you have to stand by the Council of Trent then you have to stand by the Second Vatican. You have to stand by by all these bulls and edicts. You know, when the Pope stands up and says, I'm speaking for God, you have to stand by that because that's what the Catholic Church teaches. It's clear. It's not debatable. They have to hold on to those things because they're saying that they're speaking for God, and if God doesn't change, they can't change what they said. Now, we have little things every now and then. They could come out with a statement that's clarifying something. But they can't take it back because that destroys their whole system, their whole framework. So it matters today because Catholics, they're not changing. Their teachings, they cannot change. So why do we see so many evangelicals holding hands with Catholics? I was a pastor, at, uh, I was a senior pastor up in Saskatoon, um, which is a real place. I always have to say it. You guys, you guys are like, wait, Saskatoon? Yes, it's a real place. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, I was a senior pastor there. And I had a really hard time because I was supposed to have fellowship with uh, these guys who were having joint sessions uh, with, with Catholics. I remember sitting at a pastor's fellowship and... Uh, like they were talking about Reformation Day and what are you guys doing for Reformation Day? And they're like, oh, I'm so excited. We're going to have this joint uh, service uh, with the, the local archdiocese. They're going to come in. We're going we're gonna to have this joint service with Catholics. And they were promoting it as if like this was a great thing. And I remember just being heartbroken. Like what, 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 what did I get involved with? You know, like this is awful. And uh, that that's happening all over the place. It's not just in Saskatoon. That's all over the place. You see different statements coming out saying Catholics are saved. They're saying that, oh, you can do these. Like we're coming together for under the banner of Christ. Let me be clear. There can be no unity between Roman Catholic teaching and what the Bible says and what evangelicals hold to, what Protestants hold to. There can be no unity around that, even though we are to love people, even though we are supposed to uh, bear with people and, you know, can we get along with people? Uh, what Paul says, in as much as lieth within you, 
you know, live at peace with all men. We want to do that, but we cannot do it at the sake of the gospel. And that's the Catholic Church. That's where the line is. They say all these things, anathema, if you believe the gospel. They have to hold to that even today. It's their whole framework. And yet, here we are as evangelicals saying, I think we can get past some of these things. So who's changing? The Catholic Church, they cannot change. Their framework will fall apart. They cannot because they're saying that they're speaking for God. So who's the one changing? Well, it's not the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't change. It's us. We're changing. We're letting our guard down. We're losing focus on the gospel. We're saying it's not that important. It is important. The gospel matters. The Reformation matters. And we need to celebrate what the Reformers did in reclaiming that gospel and giving it to us in the common tongue. Martin Luther uh, crowning jewel of his theological framework would be the, the great exchange, but as crowning achievement in his life wasn't nailing those 95 theses. Yes, it kickstarted everything, but it was getting the word of God in the common tongue, getting the, the Bible in German so that the, the local people could understand what God actually says. It's an amazing thing that he did. And we can thank God for what Martin Luther did. We can thank God for the reformers. You don't have to agree with Calvinism. This isn't about that. This isn't just about the sovereignty of God. Although there's aspects of it. I'm just saying, you got to go into the solas. You can see, you can see it. You can see it there. Um, but it's not just about that. It's about justification by faith alone. So if you believe in that, you're a spiritual descendant of, uh, of Martin Luther of John Calvin, of Ulrich Zwingli, of Beza and Knox and all those guys. And it's a beautiful history that we have. And we should celebrate it because it's the greatest reclamation of anything is getting that gospel back, getting it into the, like, uh, into the like access that people could have uh, by reading it in their own native tongue and then being able to share it and to go out and share that gospel with with more people uh so let's hop into the chat and uh see how everyone disagrees i don't think i'm gonna have that much disagreement today other times yes oh and we'll come back to uh anna marie's thing i forgot we'll get back to it um let's see here all right let's let's get into that now then samantha says doug wilson with his faith plus faithfulness yep I mean, I already said it like Doug Wilson teaches that you have to add on works for your justification. Like, where was that? <laughs> yeah. Calvin, we dream not of a faith, which is devoid of good works, nor of a justification, which can exist without them. While we acknowledge that faith and works are necessarily connected. We, however, place justification and faith not in works. Uh, if you were sitting with Doug Wilson, he would affirm this. But when you dig into his teachings, like this last statement, place justification and faith not in works, he can't say that. Not honestly. Um, 
not based if he's going to hold to all the other things that he said about it. Um, because we're not just talking about like everyone knows. All right. Like Martin Luther said, um, what, 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 how did it go? Uh, faith alone saves, but a faith that saves is never alone. Martin Luther said that something to that effect as a paraphrase. Um, but that, that's not what we're talking about. All right. That's orthodox saying that works come from faith is orthodox. But when you're saying that, that, that good works and you start putting terms like faithfulness and saying that that faithfulness is your faith, that's where you get into heretical teaching. That's what Doug Wilson teaches. So, uh, and it's, like I said, look at, look at like the Catholic church. These things are not new and it's very similar to what you see, uh, in some of those writings. Um, let's see. Uh, I see some people talking back and forth. Uh, let me go down to Psalm 139. Uh, what do you say when the EOs and Catholics tell us Protestants, our faith, apostolic succession can only be traced back to the Reformation? I say, uh, Gregory of Nyssa would disagree with you. Uh, Basil of Caesarea would disagree with you. Athanasius, uh, you like, you can look at so many historical teachings, and thank God that we have access to all of these writings, or at least a lot of writings from these different individuals. And you can look back and you can see all these people who were teaching Reformed theology, Augustine. Like, you can you can look at their ideas of justification by faith alone, and you can see it pretty clearly. Uh, so that, that's what I would say. Go and look at the sources, at Fontes. Go back to the sources. No, they aren't the, the real sources. I'm just saying, like, there. There's sources that we can go to. Um, let's see. Uh, the, Re the reformers believe Christ was enough based. Um, I'm too old. I don't, what's based means, guys? Like, I see that so often. Help me. Help me. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Luke, uh, Dean, having you do a teaching through the book of James, fo uh, focusing on the tension of works versus faith, would be very interesting. Maybe for Bible rhythms? Maybe. Maybe, maybe. There's Bible rhythms coming up on Friday. Uh, I honestly think evangelicals swim the Tiber because of squishy evangelicals. What he means by that is going to Catholicism. Um, if they learn the history of their own faith, they might stay. Uh, I agree. Uh, I completely agree. Like a lot of people look at Catholicism and they're like, wow, like that's so robust. They like, they know their history. It's, it seems rooted in something. And when you look at evangelicalism, you know, at least today you see things changing and you see things are flexible, you know, uh, different theological frameworks are, you know, they're said to be really important one moment and then they're different, you know, a couple years later and doesn't, there's no connection to church history, uh, or very little. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's accurate. A lot of people become Catholics because they look at it and see like how rigid it is and see how rooted it is in history. And they want that. They want something firm and evangelicalism doesn't seem that way. And that's, that's the fault of pastors and theologians, uh, that we need to actually teach church history, talk about it, show that it's not just us in this church. When our church was founded, that we started believing in these things. We've been believing these things for thousands of years now. Um, and yes, we did have periods where things were a little, a little wish-washy there. And we we're like, wait, what's going on? Uh, but 
the gospel has always been going out and we're attached to that. Um, let's see. Everyone's saying hi to Jack. Hi, Jack. Lots of Jack talk. Not, not for Dean. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Uh, Doug seems to redefine faith. Yes. When he's talking about faith, you need to like, remember like all the writings that he's talking about and how faith is faithfulness. Like that's a huge aspect of his teaching. Um, Psalm 139, not just squishy evangelicals, but even those who call themselves reformed or Calvinist faith plus work seems to be a plague among us. Yes. And it's always a temptation because like we want credit. We want to do things. And it seems like if you can do things that makes your faith tangible and it makes it feel like you're doing something that is a, like that is always going to be uh, a temptation for people, including anyone, is to attach works onto your justification because then it puts justification in my hands, which is what we want. We want control. Uh, Ethan, uh, to me, it's strange that they can take back any church councils, uh, that they can't take back any church councils. Council of Trent says Protestants are anathema while Vatican II borders on universalism. Yeah. Well, it's just adding on all these different things. So, and then like, like looking at these newer ones through and through like using that as a lens into the old ones, but that's not how you do theology. Um, all right. Well, I hope that this was helpful for you. I hope that you enjoyed talking about the Reformation, and I hope that maybe what we talked about today might affect you in two ways. One is to glorify God. Like if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, that you put all of your faith in him for your salvation, that you trust in him alone, that his work on the cross for you is fully sufficient, then praise God for that. And that's something that we can all do constantly is to glorify God for our salvation, that we should be working out like that, like the first four solas are really theological. And then that fifth one is doxological. In other words, how we worship like sola Deo Gloria, that he gets all the credit uh, for our salvation. So I, I would say glorify God. That should be something that we take as an application from today, but also look into church history, look into church history and realize that we got a rich history and it's not just the Catholics. It's not just, Oh, well, everything from, you know, council of Nicaea onward to 1517. That's all Catholic history. We don't talk about that. We don't know that there are people there that believed in justification by faith alone. Uh, we could look back at that. We can, we could look back at John Huss. You know, you can, you can look at a tons of different people and find justification by faith. Uh, and our history goes further back than 1517, but also look at what happened with the reformers. Thank God for that. And let's talk about it. Let's celebrate, you know, October 31st. Yes, it's Halloween. Yes, it's fun. It's cute. The kids are going to go hand out you know, get treats. They're not going to hand them out. Uh, they might hand them out to me, my kids. They're going to hand me so much. Okay. I'm just saying, if I'm going to go out there and do all the work of walking around all these neighborhoods, you know, I get, I get a little bit daddy tax. Um, <laughs> but that's really fun. But let's also talk about, uh, the reformers and reformation day. And let's, let's celebrate what God did. Uh, a couple people just here at the end here. Dean, who is your favorite crippled theologian? Uh, you by far, Dr. Romine. Doctor. Um, Alex, uh, what is the best way to describe the relationship between faith uh, 
and repentance. Well, you like that. I would say that what salvation looks like is you placing your faith in Christ. That moment, regeneration happens. Regeneration leads to that repentance. Um, so it's, it's a train car. And these train cars, like I live in a town where there's trains all over the place and we're constantly having to wait. Uh, but it's like that regeneration would be like the locomotive, that, that, that faith of you uh, believing in Jesus. That is a gift in Ephesians 2. It regenerates you. you that those train cars are going to follow right after. Uh, and so it's going to come surely. Um, particular Baptist church history is rich for sure. Uh, Luther didn't create this doctrine. He pointed back to it. Exactly. Yeah. We have a rich history. All right. Kind of good. This was a little bit of a long one, but that's all right. Uh, I will see you probably maybe even tomorrow. I'm, I'm trying to do more streams and try to get them up and, uh, you know, have a little bit of fun. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's a little story going around about some kind of like a rehab, like ranch for celebrity pastors. That seems weird. I'll probably be talking about that uh, once I do a little bit more research into it. Uh, but I'll probably be either streaming tomorrow or Wednesday and then Friday will be Bible Rhythms. I will see you then.